This is Neil Erwitz at the Center for a New American Security. We're here today and we have the honor of speaking with uh, Admiral Gary Ruffhead, who is the former Chief of Naval Operations as well as a CNAS board member, so I need to be on my game. And uh, Amy Schaefer, who has just written Generations of War, The Rise of the Warrior Cast and the All-Volunteer Force, focusing on how so much of our military talent pool keeps coming from the same families and the same regions. Um, Admiral Ruffhead, let me start with you. Uh, how is this development of a quote-unquote warrior cast a problem for the uh, for the military and for its talent pool? Yeah, well, Amy and Neil, it's great to be with you. And I think whenever I talk about the problems, I, I believe it's also important to talk uh, also about the quality of the force that's been created really by the the change uh, of our military into an all-volunteer force. And I think what you're homing in on is what I like to refer as that to the, the fact that we're now moving from an all-volunteer force to an all-professional force. And I think uh, you, and particularly the work that Amy has done, has identified um, the creation of a, perhaps a more insular military, which I, I think uh, is something that we should be paying attention to. As uh, Amy has pointed out in her work, uh, more uh, currently serving people come from families of, uh, uh, with a military background. Probably the last time we saw that was after World War II because of the massive participation in our military. Uh, and then you've also pointed out that we're begin becoming somewhat geographically uh, targeted. And so I, I do think that's a problem because it does uh, not reflect uh, what I like to call as the face of the nation, not only geographically, but also from different economic uh, groups. And, and um, in my time as CNO, I, I always uh, put a priority on diversity within our force because I think that's particularly important, especially in leadership ranks. So, so I do think it is uh, an issue that, that you've identified and that we really have to pay attention to. And let me uh, open this to both of you. Is this harming the military's ability to do its job, to keep us secure, having everybody come from these similar backgrounds? I would say that from the performance of the force, no. But I would uh, look to the future and see what it portends. Because I, when you look at um, the nature of the force and the design of the force uh, and where you're drawing it from, particularly in an all-volunteer environment, which it still remains, the um, health of our economy is also going to reshape that force. And so rather than looking at it as a snapshot in time, I think we have to look out into the future. Uh, see what the trends will be. The fact that the military will have to get the numbers it needs to fill out the services, that's kind of what I call the, you know, the Woody Sutton theory of recruiting. Uh, Woody, Woody Sutton, Sutton was a bank robber. Okay. <laughs> Dating that was uh, a little before my time. <laughs> uh, was a bank robber, and they asked him why he robbed banks, and he said that's where the money is. And and I think that if you're having to fill out a force, which you have to do, you know, we have to have the numbers of people and all the services uh, in order to do our missions. That even though you may want more geographic and perhaps more uh, economic diversity you will still likely go to where 
the people are more inclined to serve. And I think, as you've pointed out, that requires uh, different approaches, in my view, to recruiting. Um, and I, I think that we really, particularly in the coming generations, need to capitalize more on not the brick-and-mortar recruiting stations, but how do you appeal to people with different communi communication mediums. Uh, so I think that's, that's one of the things that we have to do. But the fact of the matter is the services will have to go to where they know they can get the people. Right. So I think what you've really done is hit on one of the critical aspects of this report, which is that by recognizing these trends right now, the services really have the opportunity to take a long-term view of the recruiting and the retention future and really stem some of these problems before they manifest even further. So they can say, we're going to focus on the diverse quality of our recruits, whether it's geographic, whether it's socioeconomic, rather than just focusing on quantity and start sort of stemming the tide of this isolation right now. And I think this really pretends an opportunity for the services to get ahead of this trend. Yeah, and I would say, from my experience, I believe the services are aware of this, mm -hmm. that uh, they know they, they need to look toward the future. And as I said, it's not going to be a static environment. Um, mm -hmm. Our economy, as it improves, will um, form people's choices uh, that they have. Uh, I also think, and, and you know, I know you're focused on the military, but... One of the things that may help, in addition to different methods of outreach and recruiting, uh, is really to perhaps use this opportunity, as Amy pointed out, you know, services need to get out in front of the problem. But I think that this may be a time where the nation really needs to take a hard look and have a serious discussion about some form of national service. And I'm not talking about a draft or conscription. Mm -hmm. But I think that by pulling people into uh, some form of service that encompasses the entire country, that you may then begin to get people to think in terms of, should I do that or should I go in the military? And that could change the dynamic a little bit. And let me hit on that because I think that's a very fair point, particularly for those of us who have not served. Does the fact that the pool of, of people who serve uh, becoming smaller and smaller, does that make those of us who have not served more willing to use force? I mean, the old line is it's a lot easier to send somebody else's kid to war than your own. Oh, without question in my mind, I think that the application of force or the use of force, um, when you have this very, very professional, very effective military with very few impacts in the in the towns and cities and counties around the country that that decision can be made uh, I won't say cavalierly but uh, much easier the other thing that I believe it does is it removes from the national discussion the importance of having a discussion not just about the use of force but the resourcing of of the military that we have I think that most of the discussions about how much the country wants to spend on its military is not as robust as it should be. And so um, much easier to commit forces, and I would say a very uh, limited discussion about what the nation should be spending to maintain the forces that it has. And, and that's not just people. Those are, that's capital assets and maintenance and infrastructure. And so I think that there's just a lack of a, of a thoughtful, deep discussion about this whole topic. 
Absolutely. So I think one of the dynamics that we've seen at play is that we have a military that is viewed incredibly favorably by the U.S. public, but we've almost seen a dynamic where we've traded engagement with the military for esteem of the military, and I don't think that that is healthy or serves anyone well in a democracy. Some of the fantastic polling data that came out of a recent book by Corey Shockey and Jim Mattis before he went back into the government shows that a large part of the U.S. population really doesn't know anything about the military. They're estimating that the Marine Corps has over a million people and other statistics like that that really show that not only is the public writ large uninformed about the military, but then they're also saying they don't know to a lot of questions. They're sort of unwilling to engage because they feel like it's not necessarily their place because they're not connected to the military. And that raises this problematic aspect when the military has grown so isolated that the public feels not only like they don't need to know about the military, but that it's not their place to engage with some of these more difficult issues. It's left up to very few people to engage with how we use force. And we've seen that play out even in the debates going on with this year's NDAA, we're seeing a new amendment to revoke and rewrite the authorization for the use of military force, but that hasn't happened since 2001 or 2002. It's been 15 years of military engagement. That there are, say, within three years, there will be people who are serving in Afghanistan who were not born at the time that the war began. Let me touch a little bit then on what this does long term to the veterans population, you know, that people outside of the, this population or who have not dealt with uh, veterans uh, tend to think that clapping at a football game is enough. I obviously have my own thoughts on that, but I'd like to hear yours as well. What does that do to how veterans are able to integrate with the overall civilian population? Yeah, well, I come from this from the standpoint of someone who entered the military uh, during Vietnam when that attitude wasn't prevalent mm -hmm. uh, to where we are today where there's, I would say, great respect and admiration and emotional support for those who wear the uniform. And I will tell you, they're night and day, and today is much better than it, than it used to be. So I think that there is appreciation and respect for those who serve and those who have served. Veterans wear their service proudly, as they should. But I think we also have to recognize that time passes. And as we wind down the combat operations, as fewer men and women in our country are involved in the military and come from a very narrow segment of our society, I think you could potentially see some of those attitudes change. Uh, that's just something that we have to uh, watch for, to look for. And then the other thing that is important is the cost of the military that we have today and uh, the cost of, of sustaining the type of force that we have, active reserve and guard, and then fulfilling our promises to the veterans. And that is an increasing percentage of the defense budget and one that I think in a few years, and I say a few years, not mm -hmm. a decade, is going to come home to roost. And when all of that takes place and uh, there's tension between benefits for the military, the cost of the military, I think that could change the discussion markedly. 
guess a time was when, when more people had served, it would be the hiring person either will have served or know somebody who served and understand what military experience means and how it integrates into the workplace. Are we losing that? Absolutely. I think we're seeing a dynamic where one of the places the civil military divide really manifests itself is after service when veterans are trying to reintegrate into the civilian economy and they may not have the shared terms and they may not have employers who really understand what it means to serve today. And so there's sort of a mismatch there that may be making it harder than it needs to be for veterans to sort of rejoin the American public. Yeah, I I think that there needs to be more work done on what I would call transition Mm-hmm. Uh, assistance or support. The fact that someone who's had a very successful career in the military, uh, whether enlisted or an officer, does not translate always directly into a civilian application. Processes are different. And I and I think that we could do a much better job of, of making that transition easier and more effective. I believe one of the things, and and we had a focus on this during my time in the Navy, and I believe it's continued, is for many of the skills and and occupations, particularly in our enlisted ranks, uh, ensuring that at the same time the young men and women were getting appropriate civilian certifications so that those were translatable. But that's a, a significant undertaking, and not every civilian occupation has those certifications, but I think we could do a better job doing that. This is an incredibly talented pool of people that the nation has already invested a lot of resources in, so it's really in everybody's best interest to make sure that there's a little bit more fluidity, and the services have been working hard to improve transition, but again, making sure that state-level certifications are something that are easier for service members to achieve will work both better for service members and also better for the local economies. I would say, you know, Amy may be a better source on this than I, but I think one of the things that as you uh, evolve into this more insular military uh, that the data shows we're moving toward, uh, there is a sense of camaraderie and closeness that I think oftentimes when someone transitions into the civilian occupation uh, or into civilian uh, employment, that, that that is not there, and, I, and, and that can be missed. And that's and tough to lose. It's tough to lose. And it's yeah. something that really defined uh, their purpose in life. In many instances, it was uh, one of their first uh, adult life experiences to be in that environment. And then when you're out of it, uh, that that you may feel lost a bit. And I think one of the, the interesting uh, aspects of, of this transition, particularly from military to civilian, is a means to see how long that support continues and 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 how the networks on the civilian side can continue to support uh, a fulfilling life. How do we fix or at least move towards some solutions for this increasingly insular force? From my view, um, I consider the creation of the all-volunteer force to be the most significant change that, that the U.S. military has undergone in in decades. Since World and War II. Maybe even before. Um, you know, people talk about revolution in military affairs. To me, the most revolutionary change was the creation of the all-volunteer force. But that was quite some time ago. Um, it happened about the time that I was beginning my career. And I think what is required is another look at the force. We had 
the Gates Commission that created the all-volunteer force, I really do think it, it's time to look again at the force, how it's evolved in ways that we've just talked about, to look at the force as um, how will it be sustained going forward from a uh, from an economic and budgetary perspective. And, and I think the time is now to do that. We are the preeminent military. Uh, we know that we have some significant issues within the force, and particularly the affordability of the force. And I really do think uh, that is required. To, to say that you can do it in-house, that will easily be uh, articulated. But I really do think, uh, much as the Gates Commission in my view, was the only way that we would have transitioned the force at that time. I think it's time to give it another another look. I would agree with that wholeheartedly. I think having a new commission that can look at things such as the isolation of the force, whether the total force mix needs to be shifted between guard reserve and the active duty makes a lot of sense and will mitigate a lot of these issues. You know, I think the guard and the reserve are sort of the key constituencies that can influence this starting tomorrow because they're already embedded in serving their communities in a way in which the active duty force, which PCS is across the country, may not have that same connectivity to the civilian sector. And that this is another place where the services have a lot of control to sort of affect the way that they recruit in the future and have a real impact on the issue. Admiral Rafed, Amy, it's been a real honor and a pleasure. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks.